Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Margaret Leslie Davis about her new book, The Lost Gutenberg, the astounding story of one book's 500-year odyssey. Margaret, welcome to the show. Thank you. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I'm uh, a biographer. I'm best known for my popular histories about Western tycoons. I had the pleasure of writing the biography of William Mulholland. We all know the story of uh, the water, bringing the water to Los Angeles. It was great fun to write. Um, I've also written biographies of Edward Doheny and Los Angeles' great culture broker, Franklin Murphy. Uh, Most recently, I published a really fun book, uh, my first about a woman. Uh, It was about the greatest, most risky art exhibition ever mounted when First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy brought none other than the Mona Lisa to America in 1963. And that book's just been a great joy to write and share around the world. What was it that led you to write a book about a Gutenberg Bible? You know, this is such a good question because this is the lesson, Mark. Always answer your email and take every phone call because you never know where the next great story or the next great book idea or even the next great friendship is going to come from. Uh, After my Mona Lisa book, Mona Lisa and Camelot, was excerpted in Vanity Fair, I started receiving calls and messages from a woman by the name of Rita Falders. She was based in Camarillo. Uh, many of your listeners might know the area. It's uh, near the Reagan Library. Uh, and she told me she had been the curator of the Gutenberg Bible, once owned by Estelle Doheny. And she piqued my interest. I finally jumped in the car, went up to see her. And when she opened the garage door, it was like the National Archives, boxes and boxes of ephemera, telegrams, diaries, letters, invoices, receipts, even the actual original bill of sale connected with um, Estelle Doheny's purchase of this particular Gutenberg Bible that I trace in this book, The Lost Gutenberg, over 500 years. So it was an enormous adventure to roar through the boxes, discover what was there, and rarely is a biographer given this amount of primary material, uh, most of the people involved in the story are now deceased, uh, you know, centuries ago in some cases, decades ago and years ago. So it was great to have their words recorded for posterity. It, it was almost as if I was kind of um, being nudged along this uh, kind of research uh, adventure to see if I could pull this story together. And lo and behold, as I discovered more and more details about this particular Bible designated as number 45, I knew I had to write a full book about it. You have this, it is really a fascinating story of these people, for many of whom their only connection is the fact that at one point or another, their lives were touched by this Bible. 
So perhaps it's best to begin by talking about the book itself. What is number 45 and what distinguishes it both as a book as a book and also as a Gutenberg Bible? You know, we it's, we know that Gutenberg probably printed just about 200. Some scholars think he printed 180 of these Gutenberg Bibles. Each one was different. Uh, when Gutenberg printed the book, uh, it was loose sheets, and they would be delivered to the buyer, and then the buyer would pick the binding, hire an illuminator uh, to uh, you know, add the decorative uh, details that we're all familiar with, with the lush kind of uh, gold tone paints and the lush uh, garden elements that have been added to it. So each Gutenberg is different. So of those 180 or 200, we're not sure exactly how many, 30 of them were printed on vellum or animal skin. And Mark, this statistic just floored me. It took 170 calves in other words, you had to slaughter 170 animals to create enough vellum to print the entire Gutenberg Bible on, just for one copy of the Gutenberg Bible. So it was really a huge and laborious task. We think it took three to five years to print. We're not sure of the exact date because Gutenberg did not leave any marks of ownership in any of the Bibles. But we know for certain that it was printed before 1456. So some scholars are thinking 1454, 1455 is pretty much the best pinpoint date. And I love this detail. What we do know about Johann Gutenberg, we know from the many lawsuits that he was involved in. (laughs) There's really very few letters or public records other than the litigation. And as great as this enterprise was of um, really an invention, it is not hyperbole to say, change the course of human history. It, the fruits of this printing press would generate the Reformation, the scientific revolution, the industrial revolution, the digital revolution that we're all enmeshed in today. And truly, uh, he is the man of the second millennium. The fruits of this invention reach far, far and wide. Uh, So the interesting aspect is we knew we had some printing early, ancient printing in both China and Korea. Uh, Some of your listeners may be familiar with the famous Diamond Sutra that was a Buddhist book from China Oh, I think it's dated about 868, 870, scholars surmise. But again, this was a method of block printing that used, you know, carved wood blocks, but by hand. So what Gutenberg did was take this a huge leap forward and created um, kind of um, uh, a series of uh, printing elements that he devised from olive presses or great presses. He came up with the idea that a series of characters could be cast in metal, characters could be durable, reusable, and easy to reset. He also came up with a way to ink the letters with a kind of new kind of rolling device. Um, so what he did was he aggravated, aggregated or combined a number of inventions and processes to make mass production of printed books possible. So what we can claim that Gutenberg did with these 200 Gutenberg Bibles is he created the first mechanically printed, mass-produced book in the West. 
And really, the beauty of these books, they are considered masterpieces, and anyone who has seen a copy of the Gutenberg, and they're scattered around the world, there's uh, <clears throat> under 12 copies in, um, uh, in the United States right now, uh, the beauty and majesty really is unsurpassed. It's almost as if Henry Ford had created you know, the perfect assembly line for his automotive um, industry and business right out of the gate. Uh, so there's no question there was an element of genius of this. So you have these books that are printed and, and no two books are alike. And that's one of the things I thought was really fascinating is how because of that, it's, it, it makes it easier to sort of trace these paths of, that these books took. And one of the things I thought was interesting, though, was that you pick up the path in the late 18th, early 19th centuries, because as you described, that's a time at which interest in these books in particular starts to uh, grow. That's right. This surprised me the most in my research was as famous as the Gutenberg is now. Think right now it's considered the greatest book in the world, the greatest book of all time, possibly the most valuable. For 300 years, it was basically a forgotten book. And it really wasn't until about 1765 when a book authority was rummaging through a library of a cardinal, Cardinal Mazarin in Paris, uh, and stumbled on one of these Gutenberg Bibles, and immediately recognized it as the first edition of the first printed book in existence. And he hailed it as the most important printed book of all time. And this sort of set the Gutenberg off on this sort of trajectory where an ignored book, you know, by the 20th century, and then the 21st century became the most valuable in the world. So it's kind of fun to watch the heat map of uh, shifting influence and prices as they continue to rise. And the tycoons who could buy the greatest art in the world or buy yachts or land or invest in businesses and railroads, they started wanting their Gutenbergs. <laughs> it was a, a, a status symbol. It was um, you know, a real sense of uh, a steam builder to have a Gutenberg in your library. By now, of course, the individual can never hope to own a Gutenberg Bible. They really are so valuable that only museums or libraries could hope to have one, should one ever come on the market again. So our first owner purchased the book for only 45 pounds, our book, number 45. It's designated the 45th Gutenberg in 1836. And I love the story. He just wrapped it in newspaper, carried it home to his library. Uh, this was in uh, Northern Ireland uh, near a, a village called uh, Market Hill. And Mark, imagine this. He did not think of the Gutenberg Bible as the most valuable book in his collection. He just considered it just another sort of run-of-the-mill rare book. He was more infatuated with his Shakespeare first folio and, in fact, treated the Shakespeare folio more like a pet, would stroke its cover, would bring it out to show visiting, um, you know, <laughs> visiting characters from the neighborhood or uh, aristocrats that would come to knock on his door and share his book collection. So I just love that for a while this Gutenberg Bible was stashed on a shelf and forgotten. But that was fortuitous because I credit the fact that it was not touched and not handled during this early part of its existence, sort of benign neglect, 
allowed the book to stay very pristine. And in fact, number 45 may be one of the most beautiful copies in existence today. As you explained, uh, number 45, though, does have the distinction of being incomplete and that this is one of the reasons why some collectors early on would pass on it because they would want a com- both volumes of the Gutenberg Bible and not just the, 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 the one extant volume of 45. That's exactly right. You know, the Gutenberg was printed in two volumes, volume one and volume two. It was the St. Jerome's Vulgate translation in Latin of the Bible. So imagine this, the first volume carries from Old Test- of the Old Testament from Genesis through Psalms. The second volume goes from Proverbs to Revelations. So of the 49 Bibles that we know around the world today, 21 are complete, meaning they have both volumes. So number 45 lost her second volume, and if any of your listeners can find it, it must be worth at least $50 million. (laughs) So check your attic. It is somewhere. It is somewhere lost in a library, in a trunk, who knows, in an attic, hidden in a garage. So it's definitely worth finding. You know, we know that the valuation today is astronomical. So a two-volume, as you say, complete Gutenberg could fetch as much as $100 million dollars if it were to come on the market. And we know this because just a few years ago in 2014, Mark, imagine this, just a single leaf, one leaf, one page of the Gutenberg sold for $800,000. So our third Earl of Gosford, our first Irish owner who bought the book in 1836, got the bargain of all time when he only paid 45 pounds for volume one of number 45. (laughs) One of the things you do in the book that I really uh, found fascinating was you don't just describe the, uh, you know, the the acquisition of the book or the collection. You, you, You really tried to get into what the owners did. And you've already alluded to that with, with what uh, the Earl of Gosford did about how for him, as you described, and this was, you know, with the first folio and with the uh, Aldines that he uh, treasured so much was that he desired, it seems like he desired them mostly as physical objects rather than, you know, for the information inside. So for him, it was, I, I, the word that kept passing to my head was he almost fetishized them for, for, for rather than necessarily reading them on a regular basis. Exactly. He did not read his books. He merely collected them. And he was what they call a point maniac, which is somebody who is completely fastidious and checks every page of a book, looks for anomalies by the printer, missing pages, errors. Uh, So he was kind of a sort of a manic book collector who never read the books that he collected. That is, I just love that detail about it. (laughs) Another part of your, of your uh, book that's so fascinating is you also describe how these books fall out of these collections. And it, it's just interesting how you, the, these books, they, they get collected, they become uh, valued by their owner for one reason or another. And yet within a few years of their passing, they change hands. It, it, about, it, 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 I especially thought it was especially true when you're talking about the, uh, the fourth Earl of Gosford, uh, uh, Archibald Atchison's uh, son, how when the third Earl passes away and you, you, you describe, you know, the, the finances and, 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 and what happens to the family, about how with, with the fourth Earl and his problems, you know, as you, I, I love how you put it too, different, you know, the, different things matter to them. And, the, and then uh, because of that, the, uh, 
the Gutenberg then uh, you know takes a very different journey. Yes, after the third Earl passes, the fourth Earl had quite a gambling habit. And in fact, he was on the society pages almost daily running around with, quote, raucous royals. <laughs> he, had a, he had a habit for playing backgammon, you know, into the wee hours. And apparently grew his debt so large that he had to unload the Gutenberg Bible and much of his father's book collection just to pay off the debts. I'm sure his father would have rolled in his grave to think that his son would have sold the Gutenberg Bible to pay off something as preposterous as a backgammon debt. But in fact, that's how big a problem he had. Uh, In one of the letters, I just love reading all the primary correspondence, one of the lawyers or solicitors uh, for the fourth Earl says, you better marry a rich wife you know, or plan on selling everything in your father's book collection and everything else to make ends meet. Um, But uh, in fact, um, he had to let the book go by 1884. And this is where the new owner takes on the Bible, and he's completely different. He is Lord William Amherst. He acquires the book. Now, keep in mind, Gosford bought the book for 45 pounds. Amherst buys it for 600 pounds. So you can see the leap in value there. But Amherst considers it the most important and valuable book in his library. He was a true bibliophile. He understood the enormous... um, position that this book held in Western history. He considered it one of the great artifacts of Western civilization. So Lord Amherst had like a connoisseur's eye, a great love of books, and a bottomless hunger for the best the world had to offer. And he also had a fortune that could sustain his habit. He was really into Egyptian antiquities. He traveled in the Middle East often. He brought home huge statues. Some of your listeners who've been to the um, New York Metropolitan Museum have seen the giant 10-ton Sekhmet statues from Egypt that flank uh, one of the halls in permanent display. Amherst actually brought those statues to flank the front door of his home, which was known as Didlington Hall. This was a grand country home north of London in an area called Norfolk. And it reads like a catalog of wealth. It, it, Mark, it actually exceeded the wealth and grandeur of Downton Abbey. This is no exaggeration. <laughs> it had 46 bedrooms, one for visiting royalty. The home had 12 reception rooms, a grand ballroom. It had its own museum. It had a library with a secret vault. And that is where uh, Lord Amherst hid the Gutenberg Bible for safekeeping. But unlike Gosford, who never looked at the book, never read the book, never enjoyed the book, every Christmas Amherst would bring the book out of the vault when uh, People came to visit. He would share the book with them. Visiting royalty were often allowed to feel the book, touch the book, uh, scan its pages, feel the cover. He had six lovely, brilliant daughters, all very self-educated. They would spend long hours in the library. And the girls, along with their father, would turn the pages of the Gutenberg, examine the anomalies, look at the little pinholes where Gutenberg had uh, placed... um, the book in the original printing press, um, and learned everything they could, every delicious morsel from copy number 45. 
I, I can imagine that there must be generations of bibliophiles who will read that description and will be so envious the opportunity to not just study a Gutenberg firsthand, but to return to it time and again and pour over its every page and then put it back and be able to go to it any time that they feel uh, the, the desire to really examine it in detail. It's such a fun story, and you can just picture them in this enormous library. I mean, it was like out of a fairy tale, you know, um, huge vaulted ceiling, uh, just the kind of place you want to curl up and read a great book. But his book collection was truly one of the greatest in Britain at the time. He was considered the UK's great bibliophile. But sadly, disaster would fall on him as well. Despite this enormous wealth, the family was Godsmacked with tragedy when the family's longtime solicitor was found dead of an apparent suicide. And within days, the story unraveled that the solicitor, unbeknownst to Amherst, had literally absconded with the majority of the family's fortune. He had speculated wildly on stocks in America and had pretty much mortgaged all of Amherst's extensive properties, none of which um, Amherst knew. So Amherst was forced to sell many items um, from his collections and finally the Gutenberg Bible. He was so brokenhearted over this, and his daughter says this both in the press and in private correspondence, that four weeks after he sold the Gutenberg, was forced to sell the Gutenberg to save the family's name and uh, repair some of the damage to the debt, and just so the family could survive. Uh, they knew that eventually they would have to sell the Grand Diddlington Hall. Uh, he was dead. Yeah. He died of a broken heart, according to the daughter. Really an unbelievably tragic story, but true. One of the things you also do in the book, and, and this is something that uh, I, I, I thought was also interesting, is you describe not just these owners of the books, but you also describe the booksellers and the book buyers who oftentimes engage as middlemen. What you describe are not just, it's not necessarily that uh, a, a owner sells the book directly to a buyer, but you oftentimes have it passing through the hands of these booksellers and, and the, how they, the role that they played in terms of bringing these, uh, the, this to the attention of interested people, these people like Estelle Doheny, as we'll get to in just a few minutes, who said, you know, I'm really interested in, 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 in getting uh, a hold of a Gutenberg, and these booksellers who oftentimes will spend decades engaged in this process. Did, was a bookseller, uh, did a bookseller play a role in uh, transitioning the Gutenberg from, uh, from Amherst to uh, Dyson Perkins, or uh, did Dyson Perkins get his hands on it directly? You know, it, uh, Dyson Prince was able to buy the book at auction in 1908, but yes, this book, this Gutenberg Bible, number 45, touched the hands of the three greatest booksellers of all time, Quaritch, Mags, and Rosenbach. Rosenbach was, of course, considered the greatest bookseller of all time in America. The other two were famous, famous British bibliophiles and booksellers uh, who handled the greatest book sales and book collection, uh, you know, disposition of these collections following their owner's deaths uh, of all time. I just love the fact that this single book touched the hands of all these incredible characters, so rich with history. The next owner uh, bought the book for 2,050 pounds in 1908. So again, you see the value rising. And Dyson Prins, who's an incredibly colorful character in his own right, uh, was also 
a great bibliophile, a great book collector. He had a special penchant for uh, manuscripts, you know, uh, books before printing. Uh, so this was a new edition for him, and once he acquired the Gutenberg Bible, he became interested in filling his collection with other books uh, in the history of printing. You know, some of your listeners might know this famous uh, Worcester sauce, this was the fortune that the Dyson Perrins family uh, derived their income from, was this wonderful, delectable Worcester sauce. I have it in my refrigerator right now. I don't know <laughs> if you've ever tried it. But these bottles of sauce, you know, traveled well. They didn't need refrigeration. It kind of made even horrible food taste well. So uh, this generated literally, you know, millions of bottles were sold around the world and were used in wartime and combat. They were found on sunken ships. They went through the Panama Canal. They, you know, it was a fortune that allowed Dyson Perrins to buy the Gutenberg Bible and the other great books that he craved. Now, again, he brought the book home to another beautiful uh, mansion. This was on the outskirts of Malvern in the town of Midlands, about eight miles from Worcester. And uh, he treated the Gutenberg with the great care and dignity that she deserved. Uh, and in fact, during the war, the British Museum sent some of the most irreplaceable volumes to Dyson Perrins to be housed in the steel vault alongside the Gutenberg Bible to wait out, you know, the air raids and all the threat that war uh, was unleashing on London. As you explained, though, the uh, his collection was just one of the things that uh, Dyson Perrins valued, his collection of, of manuscripts and, and, and books. But it, he also had this fascination for in this interest in porcelain. And what I thought was really what was really uh, one of the, for me one of the best parts of your book is you describe how he had this choice to make is to you know basically what he valued. And, and as and, and in the chapter, the the fact that you call that chapter the Patriot, you know, it, it points to how he makes this choice, which involves this sacrifice of something that he clearly held very dear. Yes. His father had been on the board of the famous Worcester Porcelain Factory, which produces this gorgeous bone china that, you know, uh, British people uh, have coveted and loved. It's a big collector's item. There have been many books written about this particular porcelain house. So at, following his father's death, Dyson Prince also stepped into that role. But sadly, during the war, no one was buying fine china. And Dyson Prince took it upon himself to pay the wages of his workers and the great artists involved in this really phenomenal craft of porcelain making. I, I really think you have to call it an art. It was a fine art. Um, he felt obliged to preserve this art for posterity and not to let the company go bankrupt. So during the war, he picked up uh, paying all of the workers' uh, bills and wages. And sadly, he was forced to sell the Gutenberg to fund that cause. So you said it so beautifully, Mark. He had to choose between keeping the Gutenberg or letting his workers have a living wage and survive the ravages of war. Everyone knew the war would end, but no one knew when it would end, and the hardships were real, and the company was very near bankrupt. So in an interesting way, because the value of the Gutenberg shot up so much, 
this one book was able to feed thousands of families. It's a very touching story. Only now, the time that the Gutenberg is, uh, spends in Britain is about to come to an end because you described this very brief period of ownership by this solicitor. And there's, there's a considerable amount of mystery in, in, in your description of what exactly was happening during this period. But this is the point at which the Gutenberg is about to cross the Atlantic thanks to Estelle Doheny. I was wondering if you could spend some time talking about her because you really posit her in so many ways as the central figure of uh, your book because of all that happened with the Gutenberg thanks to her. Well, I love it. She is the first and only woman to have ever purchased a Gutenberg Bible for her collection. And she brought it all the way to Los Angeles. So it's an incredible story of number 45 going from male tycoon to male tycoon to finally a female tycoon. <laughs> and, you know, and she makes her mark on history. So after the Gutenberg is sold uh, by Dyson Prince to support the porcelain factory, it has just a brief period, as you mentioned, with a man by the name of Sir Beaumont Ferrer. He was a well-known solicitor in London. Uh, he acquires the book in um, 1947 for £22,000. Now, he acquired it at auction, and Estelle Doheny had sent Dr. Rosenbach, the great book dealer in America, to bid on the Gutenberg for her. She had been after a Gutenberg for four decades, 40 years. She had bid on a couple. She had tried to buy privately a couple. Every time it had fallen through. And by this point, by 1947, she feared she would never live to see a Gutenberg Bible in her collection, that the chance of private ownership, the door would be closed shut. Well, sadly, she told... Dr. Rosenbach, even though she was a woman with an eight-figure fortune, she set a limit on the bid she was willing to pay. And sadly, the bid went over that amount. And so Dr. Rosenbach had to stop um, his bidding for the Bible. And Sir Philip Frere's uh, book dealer, a man by the name of Ernest Maggs, uh, the Maggs bookshop is still in existence in London. It's one of the oldest and finest, most renowned in London. Uh, so he managed to acquire the Bible. However, he kept his name out of the press. Ernest Maggs kept it completely confidential who the lucky buyer was that bought the Gutenberg for 22,000 pounds. And we could find, despite the amount of um, correspondence that Sir Ferrer had, that I was able to find nowhere to no friend, uh, no family member did he share that he had acquired the Gutenberg Bible. Um, so it leads us to the speculation that he may have purchased it as an investment opportunity. You know, we're all familiar with land banking where people buy land, so in 10 or 20 years it will be incredibly valuable. My hunch is there may have been something involved uh, in this endeavor. He might have been the only owner here that looked at it as a financial investment. But this is pure speculation. Uh, but from the few facts I could gather, this is what I think happened. Well, Estelle Doheny's fortunes completely changed Three years later, in 1950, when Ernest Max, a bookseller, sends her a letter and says that his secret, confidential buyer of the Gutenberg Bible is now interested to sell the Gutenberg Bible for U.S. dollars. So Estelle Doheny jumps from her chair, 
jumps to action, calls her bankers, starts liquidating funds to get ready to acquire the book. So she acquires the book from Sir Philip Ferrer, not knowing his name or his identity, in 1950. So now we're dealing with U.S. dollars. Uh, even though he bought the book for 22,000 pounds, which would be about, it's hard to do the math exactly, but we're thinking it's about 85,000 U.S. dollars. She buys it three years later for less, for 70,000 U.S. dollars. So in a heartbeat, Estelle Doheny acquired one of the greatest artifacts of mankind for a bargain basement price, <laughs> 70,000 U.S. dollars. Uh, she ships the book to Los Angeles, and it arrives on her doorstep in October of 1950. So she acquires this book, which has been the uh, product of, as you described, decades of, of interest. And, and as you described, the fact that she is this uh, is very successful book collector she not only, you know, even though she has the fortune to do it, you describe as well that, you know, getting to that point of her, her, of her life took a lot of effort because she wasn't taken seriously given the fact that she was a woman, even though she had all this money and, and interest. That's right. Before her death, Mark, I can state with real authority, she was truly one of the greatest American book collectors of all time and certainly the greatest female book collector. Uh, the collection itself is quite staggering. She was completely self-educated. Let me tell you a little about her background. She was born August 2nd, 1875 in Philadelphia. She had the good fortune of being a telephone operator and connected the calls of oil tycoon Edward Doheny. And that is how they met. He fell in love with her voice. He found her voice so beautiful and it just resonated um, uh, something very special to him. They met, they fell in love, and they were married in August of 1900. There was a 19-year age gap between the two of them. Uh, now imagine, Edward Doheny had a staggering fortune. Uh, it really could fill tankers. For a brief period, this is a good snapshot of how rich he was. For a brief period, his fortune in oil even exceeded that of John D. Rockefeller. So that gives you a quick idea of how wealthy he was at the peak in, uh, of his career. He uh, was famous for drilling the great oil gushers in Mexico. By 1910, he had hit a well. It was known as the Cassiano Number no. 7 producing tens of thousands of barrels a day. But by 1916, he hit one of the greatest gushers in history. It was called the Mighty Cerro Azul. Imagine, Mark, it unleashed 270,000 barrels of crude oil a day. Wow. I mean, uh, these numbers are just blow mind. So if you can imagine, overnight he became the richest man in America and one of the richest men in the world. So over the next 14 years, this single well, and he had many, many other wells, this single well, Sarah Azul, produced an astounding 60 million barrels of crude oil. So they had quite a fortune to work with. <laughs> However, this family, too, 
was hit with catastrophe when Edward Doheny was embroiled in the great political scandal we know today as Teapot Dome. Edward Doheny was indicted along with his son for conspiracy and bribery. Doheny was accused of bribing the minister, the um, uh, interior cabinet official. So keep in mind, this was one of the members of the president's cabinet. His name was Albert Fall. He was a cabinet secretary, the interior uh, minister, uh, minister of the interior. He was in charge of all the federal lands of the uh, underground oil reserves. And Doheny was accused of delivering a $100,000 cash bribe for access uh, to drilling on these lands. Uh, it was a huge scandal, front page of newspapers around the world, and it was a combination of overlapping civil and criminal trials that no kidding last an astonishing 10 years. And it generated one of the great twists in American jurisprudence where Albert Fall, the cabinet official, was found guilty of receiving a bribe that Doheny was found innocent of delivering. So one man is found guilty, the other man is found innocent. So whereas after 10 years of, uh, you know, absolute uh, complicated uh, litigation, Albert Fall goes to jail and Edward Doheny is set free. So book collecting became for Estelle Doheny a great pastime, a way to occupy her mind. And in fact, she had to testify in the trial. And Mark, her testimony was written word for word verbatim on the entire front page of the New York Times. There was no other news. It was literally Estelle Doheny's testimony in this great trial of Teapot Dome. Uh, so her book collection became this... Um, much-needed mental escape, and in fact, uh, a man by the name of Frank Hogan, who delivered the not-guilty verdict for Edward Doheny in the bribery trial, was the one who first introduced Estelle into the higher echelons of book collecting, and in fact, introduced her to the great book dealer, A.S.W. Rosenbach, considered the king uh, of American booksellers. So this book collection meant way more to Estelle than just an average library or just a common hobby. This became her identity, her passion, um, her special interest, uh, and the, the incredible books that she was able to acquire during real uh, unbelievable periods of the Depression uh, where other people, other uh, dealers weren't selling books, people weren't buying books, uh, money was tight. She was able to step in and acquire the books, the greatest books of all time. Uh, the catalog uh, later done of her work uh, just demonstrates the power and beauty of this collection. You, because of all that uh, you've described though, she was, you describe how she becomes very publicity adverse and how, so she's very, she is, it's, you, you connect it to the reticence that she has of, of, of bringing to attention the fact that she has this, this Gutenberg. Uh, and yet at the same time, she's doing so much with the Catholic church and that's why you, you refer to her in the book as, as the Countess, because of, of the status. How does that association play a role with the uh, next destination for the Gutenberg? You know, uh, Edward, and Dohe Edward and Estelle Doheny converted to Catholicism 
they were very much outsiders of sort of the social uh, wheelhouse of Los Angeles. Uh, but they were very pious. There was no drinking. Um, they uh, were devoted to the church and, in fact, built really one of the most beautiful cathedrals in Los Angeles. Uh, it's very near uh, the University of Southern California. It's called St. Vincent's Cathedral, and if anybody has a chance to visit it, it's remarkable in its architectural splendor. Truly wonderful. Uh, so Estelle Doheny, in her devotion to the Catholic Church, uh, decided in the later years of her life uh, to donate her book collection, including the Gutenberg Bible, to St. John's Seminary, uh, where she thought the book would stay in perpetuity uh, and, uh, you know, stay for posterity. You know, one of the greatest uh, books in Christendom deserved <laughs> to be in a special place. She hired a really well-known and famed architect Wallace Neff to design just a jewel box of a building on the seminary's campus to house her collection, including the Gutenberg. Uh, and anyone who's stepped foot inside is just enchanted by the beauty and delicacy of this um, uh, structure. But Mark, you're so right. When the Gutenberg uh, uh, arrived, she wanted to make sure it was kept an absolute secret. And in fact, she gave the book a code name, a confidential code name, <laughs> so that no one would know it was a Gutenberg Bible that was being shipped to her. Uh, she gave it the code word commode. <laughs> she, of course, meant that it was commodious, like a chest of drawers, you know, the antique chest of drawers. But she did not realize the commode was also, uh, you know, another word for toilet. So in all the telegrams, it's great fun. You see, did the did the commode ship on time? Is the commode going to arrive safely? <laughs> and when she writes the shippers to tell them that the box arrives safely, she says, uh, you know, stupendous news, the commode arrives safely. Uh, but she and her longtime book secretary and a beautiful woman by the name of Lucille Miller did everything they did to um, make sure it was kept a secret uh, that in the family mansion, the Doheny mansion known as Chester Place, no one, not even the staff, knew that the library now held one of the rarest and most valuable books of all time. So when she dies, she passes this on to uh, the, the seminary, along with the, uh, so much else in her collection, artwork, uh, other books, and it's held by the seminary. And in, in a book that is is so laced with tragedy, I, I found that what happens next is is, per, is perhaps the most uh, a, a tragic point, especially given uh, what happens in the interim. Because you describe that because the seminary has it, and and here's where uh, Rita Falders uh, enters the uh, tale. Uh, they we are able to do something that we haven't been able to do until now, which is we be, you start to talk about the scientific study of the Gutenberg. And I thought that was one of the most fascinating passages of, of the whole book. Thank you. This, to me, I agree with you. This, to me, just blew my mind. When I discovered that number 45 had been sent on this scientific adventure, I couldn't believe it. It just seemed too good to be true for part of the story. But I went uh, and interviewed the scientists who were involved in this caper. Now, imagine this. This is 1982. A nuclear physicist by the name of Dr. Thomas Cahill, a brilliant man, and his colleague, Dr. Richard Schwab, who was a professor of history and an expert in the book, the history of the book, and an expert 
in the Gutenberg Bible. Uh, in fact, um, I had the pleasure of learning directly from Dr. Schwab that he may have seen more copies of the Gutenberg Bibles around the world than any other living person, which is kind of an exciting statistic. Well, Dr. Cahill and Dr. Schwab knocked on the seminary door, met Rita Falders, who at the time was the curator of the Bible in the beautiful uh, library there that uh, designed by Wallace Neff in Camarillo, and they asked if they could borrow the book for some scientific testing. Well, when Rita heard this, she was so alarmed what damage could come to the book. How can you just loan out the Gutenberg Bible? But to her surprise and delight, the Catholic Church actually consented to this. So Dr. Cahill, who was in charge of the, un, of the nuclear laboratory at the University of California at Davis, where... Already there was a refurbished cyclotron, or an atom smasher. This was the very same machine first used as part of the Manhattan Project to isolate plutonium for the atomic bomb uh, that would later be dropped on Nagasaki. So, after it had been retired, Dr. Cahill and his team uh, brought the refurbished cyclotron to UC Davis, where it was used for treatment of the eye and uh, various scientific experiments. Well, it was nothing short of a miracle that the church allowed the two men to borrow the Bible, and it really was a mission impossible to move the book from (laughs) Los Angeles all the way to UC Davis. Um, You know, they had a private policeman who had a gun strapped to his ankle. They went in a caravan. Uh, And this is one of the best details I love. Uh, They couldn't tell any of the lab workers that they were actually going to use the cyclotron on a Gutenberg Bible. So they told a pretty white lie and said that instead they were testing, oh, just an old Bible once owned by Bach. (laughs) Or Beethoven. They weren't sure. (laughs) So the lab officials have no idea that they're testing an actual Gutenberg Bible. So the testing begins. And then the other problem was, even though they were going to run the testing for 12 or 14 hours, they did have to get some sleep. So they couldn't figure out where to put the Gutenberg Bible on campus that didn't have, you know, those fire sprinklers that if they go off, the water comes down and makes everything wet. So the only room on campus where there was no, you know, wet fire sprinkler that could damage the book through water was the evidence locker of the campus police. (laughs) So I just love (laughs) that our lovely number 45 spent the night with bags of marijuana, cocaine, and a few guns (laughs) all in the evidence locker at UC Davis. Well, the test results were staggering, and they worked around the clock. Dr. Cahill, Dr. Schwab, Rita Falders, Rita Falders' husband, um, they discovered immediately the most astounding thing. Everyone thought that the ink that was on these pages was, in fact, carbon-based, but they were wrong. They were completely wrong. It turned out that the ink was a unique oil-based mixture with high concentrations of lead and copper, more like a fine oil painting. I've heard it referred to like a Vermeer painting, you know, thick, beautiful oil painting with these high concentrations of copper and lead. 
So from these results, Dr. Cahill uh, was able to determine that the Gutenberg must have had a new um, mixture of ink made up every day or almost every day like uh, by Gutenberg. And I love this quote. He said that it was like, Grandma made apple pie. It was a new <laughs> apple pie every day. And they were able to determine that because the concentrations of lead and copper would change from page to page in the book. So Cahill actually believed that Gutenberg's genius really was largely the secret formula for ink that would stick to metal type. It was revolutionary. It was ingenious. And Dr. Cahill is convinced that the ink recipe worked so well that he kept it a carefully guarded secret, and he took the secret with him. He did not inform his partners or his workers, and that he himself kind of whipped these batches of ink up. So the other startling discovery from the scientific testing, in addition to the ink, was in the production. So basically, Dr. Cahill and Schwab were able to break the code of the day-to-day -day production of the Gutenberg Bible. So they were able to determine from their testing with the cyclotron or the atom smasher that in volume one, uh, the pages of the Bible some of them were printed concurrently, meaning they were printed simultaneously. So there had to be more than one press. So Schwab was never able to confirm how many presses there were, but he was able to prove without a shadow of a doubt through this ink testing that the Bible was produced in six compositional units and printed concurrently. So this was you know, a huge leap forward in Gutenberg scholarship um, and really kind of gave us our first hard scientific factual evidence of the day-to-day -day, uh, production uh, of this really revolutionary uh, printing that was done sometime before 1456. So... Um, Thanks to number 45 and the fact that the Catholic Church allowed it to go on this great adventure, uh, Dr. Cahill famously said, quote, we pretty much cracked the code of day-to-day day -day and page-to-page -page organization of the Gutenberg Bible. Can you imagine? No, I can't. And, but you say, though, in the book that they, they wanted to do uh, further testing on it, but then that became impossible because of the decisions of the Catholic Church. And that's where it... it, it that the decision of the church to uh, allow the book to be studied comes across perhaps maybe a little less as miraculous and a bit more as indifference to this treasure that had been gifted to them by Doheny. What does the Catholic Church end up doing with the Bible, and how is it that they're able to uh, give up uh, this, uh, this bequest that Doheny has made of it? This is where we enter a whole part of the story that I call the unexpected betrayal. So the testing of the Bible, our so-called miracle, was about 1982. But by 1987, the Catholic Church decides to sell the Gutenberg Bible. And not only the Gutenberg Bible, but the entire cherished book collection of Estelle Doheny. There was apparently a loophole in her bequest, which she had clearly from the record, and I can say this unequivocally without any hesitation, she intended this collection to remain 
in the library that she built to house it in posterity, you know, forever. But sadly, the Catholic Church decided to raise money uh, for more tuition to educate priests that they would unload and sell the entire collection. This triggered squeals and screams of anger and opinion writers and pundits and um, editorial people, press people, journalists uh, from around the world declared that selling this collection was really um, a disaster, um, an error in judgment, uh, and that this kind of collection not only should be kept intact, uh, but should remain with the church. You know, it had some of the greatest um, Bibles in Catholic history were part of this collection. So the sale was slated for October 22, 1987. And here's another crazy thing you cannot make up. Many of your listeners will remember that on October 19, 1987, was the very day known as Black Monday of the global financial panic, where the Dow Jones in America tumbled, like I think it was like 22 or 23%. Billions of dollars were lost on the stock market. And it was like a world-shaking financial panic. Uh, so Christie's, who was launching the auction, uh, highly publicized, expected to be highly attended. It was really covered in the press. It was just a number one news story in the cultural arts and on the auction, fine art and book scene. Thought maybe no one would show up. You know, it was just literally hours after Black Monday. But no, it was a standing room only, packed to the gills. Um, uh, the Gutenberg was the first item on the block, and within less than a minute, The book was sold for $5.4 million, including Christie's commission. And at the time, it was the most expensive single book in the world, the highest price ever paid. And it turned out to be worth 75 times what Estelle had paid for it in 1950. So it reflected not only the star power of uh, the Gutenberg Bible herself, kind of the zenith, <laughs> the, you know, the most expensive book in the world, but it also reflected Estelle Doheny's shrewd mind for the bottom line and her ability to have acquired these fantastic books that went for astronomical prices. So everyone asks me, who bought it? Who bought it for the $5.4 million? It was sold to a Japanese publishing conglomerate known as Mazarin, a very old and very renowned, uh, well-known company, sort of like the Simon & Schuster of Japan, I would describe it. Um, uh, Mazarin purchased the book, uh, quietly took it to Tokyo, uh, where they put it on display and thousands and thousands of Japanese citizens uh, lined up in long lines to see the book. The Prince of Japan, Akahito, came uh, to examine the Bible himself, donning white gloves and even a mask, turning the pages uh, of the Bible to experience it for himself. Later, uh, the book was uh, donated or sold. The accounts differ. Uh, I'm, I'm suspecting it was donated to Kyo University in Japan, where it remains today. So it is locked in a steel vault in a library on the campus of Kyo University in Tokyo. Uh, and yet, you know, Estelle, uh-huh. I was going to say real quickly, though, that that's, that's the part of the story that I find most fascinating, which is, um, in one sense, the Bible today, the number 45, is totally inaccessible. And yet, as you then go on to detail, it is, in another sense, 
one of the most accessible copies in the world. Because That's it, right. It, go, go ahead. Oh, you're just going to uh, say yes, you've got it exactly right. The Japanese were the first to digitize the very first Gutenberg Bible. So imagine number 45 was the very first Gutenberg Bible to be spun out for posterity on the World Wide Web. And now today, because we can download high-res images instantly, you can access Keo University's website, zoom in to the Gutenberg Bible, and actually see the most minute details, uh, something a scholar could never even do with a magnifying glass or the naked eye. Uh, it's really quite astounding. You're absolutely right, Mark. You put it beautifully that... Even though it's locked away in a steel vault, it is the most accessible because anybody with an internet connection can actually have this up-close peek at one of the most beautiful and pristine Gutenberg Bibles in the world. And it's, it's such a nice coda to your book to describe how the, the, the growing exclusivity of ownership of this book, and yet in a sense it is thanks to number 45 that practically anybody with an internet connection today can read it for themselves. That's right. Uh, and I just love that the Japanese had this really, keep in mind now, this is, you know, um, 1987. So this is, you know, early, early in our digital landscape that they had the gumption, the resources uh, to engage in this activity by the early 1990s. Um, in fact, when they first did it, uh, it, w it took forever to download a single page. Remember the old days of dial-up on America <laughs> Online? And Do I ever. <laughs> the hum of Netscape, yes. Uh, but, but now the new high-res images are fantastic. You know, uh, the uh, the team that digitized the book is very careful to say that the pages are not scanned. This is truly a photographic effort. Uh, so uh, I love that. It. It's almost like kabuki theater. All of the technicians were dressed in black. Uh, black curtains surrounded the area for the photo shoot. And they would literally photograph each page of the Bible. And uh, again, they developed new camera techniques, all sorts of new lenses were developed for this rather uh, progressive and kind of um, advanced activity that they did in the early 90s. I commend them very much. Now, other Gutenberg Bibles, for instance, the British Library has had the same team from Japan scan their books, but this was much later, and number 45, she was the first. <laughs> Well, we've taken a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what we're working on now? Oh, my goodness. Next, I think I'm going to do a little something about the greatest yeah, British bibliophile, Sir John Phillips. Uh, no one's really kind of done a deep dive on him, and uh, I would love to do that. So I think I'm going to, going to stretch my wings and, and try that one next. Well, good luck with it. I'm sure if it's anywhere near as good as this book, it's going to be a fantastic read when you're done. Oh, Mark, thank you very much. Well, uh, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Wonderful. Thanks for having me.